Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we have a very special guest on the show. We have Peter Krauss, and he's here to talk with us about his new book called Rebel Power, Why National Movements Compete, Fight, and Win, and that's from Cornell University Press. So, first of all, thank you so much for coming on the Loopcast, Peter. Thanks so much for having me on, Chelsea. For our listeners, Peter is an assistant professor of political science at Boston College and a research affiliate at MIT Security Studies Program. His research and his teaching focus on national movements, Middle East politics, terrorism, political violence, and international relations. And it's very exciting to have him on this show. I met him in New York at a terrorism conference and got to hear about his new book, which has been getting rave reviews. And that's what we're here to talk about today and the fantastic research that's been put into this book. So first of all, Peter, what inspired you to write this book? Yes, thanks again for having me. And uh, yeah, the inspiration in some ways, I think, goes back about a decade when I was doing my PhD work at MIT. Uh, on the one hand, I've got kind of a foot in the Middle East politics field where I've studied the region for a long time and you know lived there and done research there. And on the other hand, I do a lot of research on political violence. And you know, in the mid to late 2000s, a number of people, including myself, started to do research on the effectiveness of political violence. Basically, when you use terrorism or insurgency or civil war, what does it exactly get? you politically as an organization, as an individual. And one of the things I realized about a lot of the research that had been done, much of it which was great, is that it didn't really embed the concept of political violence within broader national or social movements. And one of the most striking things about the Middle East is the fact that this whole idea of who is a nation, who gets to have a state, what are the borders, are still very live issues, even though they're not so much live issues, say, in the United States or North America. And so the book, in many ways, came from the marriage of those two issues of saying, on the one hand, I want to look at how political violence helps or hurts broader social and, and political causes. And on the other hand, where are the states of the Middle East and the region kind of coming from, and why are some nations able to get states and others aren't? And so that's what I decided to do in terms of studying and researching for the book, um, we can talk more about that, but that's really where the inspiration started, and then, as books tend to do, it uh, took a number of years to finish my dissertation and then turned it into a book that came out this year. Very nice. And so you mentioned your research and a number of years, so why don't we talk about that a bit? Um, how long did the process take, and where did your research adventures take you? Sure. So I definitely come more from kind of the qualitative end of the spectrum within political science. I definitely do stuff with building and analyzing data sets and increasingly actually with some stuff on the role of experiments and knowledge of how people react to terrorism. But historically, I'm really much more of someone who does archival work and interviews. And so a lot of my work over the years when I was getting my PhD and then as an assistant professor at Boston College was involved in living in various parts of the region. Um, the four cases or movements that I chose to study are the Palestinian National Movement, uh, the Zionist movement, the Algerian national movement, and then one outside of the region, the uh, Irish national movement. And the purpose of those selections was basically I wanted variation in outcome. I wanted some cases like the Zionists with Israel and the Algerians with Algeria who successfully got their independent state. Um, one like the Irish who kind of got a mixed bag where they got the Irish Republic but not Northern Ireland, and then the Palestinians who to this day do not have their own state. And so much of my research was involved in going and living in the, many of these countries across the Middle East, whether in the exact country themselves, like in Algeria or in Israel, but also in places where there's the Palestinian diaspora, whether in Lebanon or Jordan or elsewhere, 
both to do interviews with individuals who are part, a part of these national movements, uh, as well as doing archival work. And in terms of the archival work I did, I both looked in kind of state archives. So I went to the British archives in Kew. I went to French archives in Aix-en-Provence to get kind of the state perspective on how they handled these organizations and these movements. And then I also went to the archives of the organizations themselves. So for example, there were a number of Zionist militias that fought against the British and the local Arab-Palestinian population before the founding of Israel, and each of them in very ways, various ways has their own archive. And so I would go to these places, read documents about group strategy, about their strength, about how they use violence or not, and how they actually thought it helped them or hurt them. And when I coupled that with the interviews, I think I was able to create not only some good analysis about successes and failures, why groups use violence, why they succeed or fail, but also in some cases some new takes on the history of these movements. Uh, that's another contribution I think the book makes. And it sounds really interesting that you actually went to groups archival material. How easy was it for you to get access to those documents? Yeah, so it really varied across countries, to be honest. So things like inside of Israel, if you're going to the Haganah archives or the Jabotinsky archives, um, wasn't hard at all. You know, once you're able to go to the country, um, they have archives that increasingly make digital, but even there, uh, just going through a lot of hard copies, they had some very helpful people there. Uh, the Institute for Palestine Studies, which has a base both in Washington, D.C. and in Beirut, again, once you go there, it's not too hard. Um, others are a bit more difficult. The Algerian archives were quite difficult in the sense that it's difficult for Americans to get a visa to Algeria and then to actually get access. You have to go through the president's office because that's where the archives are housed. And so that was quite an ordeal to submit a dossier and get approval to go there. And even when I got approval for the archives, there was some degree of stonewalling to get me access to certain documents. But the long and short of it is that um, all the archives I went to were you know, incredibly helpful in terms of giving me you know, I'd say in some ways a more unique perspective on these organizations, their decisions for various violent or nonviolent tactics and their ultimate outcomes. So even though it was a lot of work to do this over the years, uh, it was incredibly rewarding, not just on a professional level, but also on a personal level. And, uh, you know, again, supplementing that with interviews was, I think, the right way to go. So I'm very proud of the, the end product, even though along the way there were certainly a lot of travels and travails. For our listeners who might be new to the concept of national movements, at least considering your knowledge on them, since you've studied this for years and years and put in tons of work and hours, why don't you give a definition of what a national movement is for listeners? Sure. So a movement or a social movement or political movement more broadly is a collection of individuals and organizations working towards some common goal. So it could be the civil rights movement, that's a social movement, the women's rights movement. A national movement is a little bit different in the sense that it is a collection of individuals and organizations working for a common goal, but in this case, the common goal is to have a state. So a nation is a group of people who feel like we have a common language, common culture, common history, but also a tie to a common piece of territory. And we want to have our people kind of rule that piece of territory autonomously. So if we think about the American Revolution inside the United States, many people would actually say that's maybe the first successful national movement. Um, when we look around the news today, we see tons of national movements. We see the Kurds in Iraq who just had a referendum where 93% of their people voted for independence. That's a national movement. We see in Catalonia where they've had a similar deal, although there's been somewhat of a crackdown, of course, by the Spanish government. We saw in Scotland in 2014 that the Scots voted um, about whether they wanted to be independent. 
which the vote just missed. But if it had happened, the British said they would let the Scots go and become independent. So national movements are still all around us. And uh, when I'm studying them, I'm studying a lot in the Middle East, and many of them that were successful or unsuccessful, you know, 50s, 60s. But some like the Palestinian national movement are still ongoing today. So that's the basic definition of it. And if you look at a map of the world, almost every country in the world uh, has an ongoing national movement of some part, even inside the United States. You know, you have the Texas or Alaskan secessionists, certainly much less of a, of a threat uh, to actually have that happen than maybe in some other parts of the world. But it's something that all countries are familiar with when you look at their history. And in fact, most countries in the world today are the result of successful national movements. Do national movements share certain characteristics or does each movement have its own characteristics that are specifically for that movement? So I think by definition, they, of course, all share the fact that they believe in themselves as being a nation. And that's certainly a controversial thing. If you look at the Arab-Israeli struggle or the Palestinian-Israeli struggle, one of the key parts of it is just who gets to count as a nation. You know, the Zionists were saying, look, Jewish people are not just a religious group. They're also a national group, the Jewish nation. And many of the Palestinians or surrounding Arab countries didn't agree with that. At the same time, the Palestinians are saying, well, we are a Palestinian nation. We are a people with a common language, culture, and history. And many Israelis or Zionists said, no, you're not actually a nation. You're part of the broader Arab community or whatever else. So a lot of it is first and foremost defining yourself as a nation. The second key thing that a lot of these national movements share in common is that they're not cohesive in the sense of having a single organization that's kind of ruling over everything. In fact, they're often quite messy kind of collaborations of multiple factions, whether they're militant groups, whether they're political parties, whether they're kind of lone individuals. And that's in many ways the core of what my book is all about. About the fact that even though these individuals and organizations share this common goal of independence, they actually often are fighting with one another or competing with one another to either lead the movement or to set themselves up to actually lead and rule a new state. And in many ways, that's the basis for the answer I give in my book for why movements are successful or not. It has a lot to do with to what extent are those various parties able to have kind of a cohesive strategy and a clear dominant organization that runs the show? If so, they're likely to get independence. If instead they're very fragmented and spending a lot of the time competing with one another, they're much less likely to be successful. And so you've just mentioned that there's a lot of different structures within national movements, and I was wondering if we could start off with discussing that a bit, because structure matters a lot for a movement's success or even failure. Absolutely. So structure comes into my book in two key ways. In fact, I think it's one of the biggest contributions my book makes regarding the argument. So first and foremost, there's a saying within American politics, it was called Miles' Law, where you stand depends on where you sit. And the basic argument was, look, as individual uh, lawmakers or otherwise, people have their own preferences. They have their own ideas about how things should be run. But if you are the assistant secretary of defense versus you're the secretary of state versus you're the vice president, that's going to also change to some extent what type of policies you support or not based on your own kind of positional self-interest. I apply that same argument to national movements. I rank organizations in terms of how strong they are relatively based on the number of members they have, how much money, how much popular support, and then I make the same argument. The only difference is I say where you stand on violence and victory, using violence and pursuing victory, depends on where you sit in the national movement hierarchy. The basic argument being that if you're the strongest organization, you are going to be really pursuing victory for the movement. Not necessarily because out of the goodness of your heart or you're especially selfless. In fact, the opposite. I assume that groups are very self-interested. But 
if you are the strongest organization, you are in line to lead and rule the new state, either by winning an election or winning a civil war. And so because you're in line to inherit the spoils, you're going to spend a lot of your time and effort pursuing that victory. On the other hand, if you're one of the weaker organizations that's lower down the list, then you're actually either not going to pursue victory or sometimes even try to forestall victory by trying to spoil negotiations or whatnot because you want to hold off on that victory until you're in the position to benefit organizationally from the after. So that's the first way that structure comes in. The second way that structure comes in, which relates to it, is that when I look at movements, I see one key distinction. Is the internal movement structure competitive or non-competitive? Think like, think like monopolies versus free markets for economics, or in terms of party systems, do you have a one-party system or a two or more party system? If you have a one-party system, or if you have in my um, you know, rhetoric or my discussion, a hegemonic movement, you have one dominant group. What that means is that group, again, is not just going to pursue victory. It's less likely to use violence to try to compete with other organizations or vice versa because it's in a pretty solid position to dominate the movement. Therefore, it's more likely to be successful. If, however, you have a united or fragmented movement with two or more significant factions, they're going to spend a lot of their time, time to one-up one another, maybe even fight one another, and at the end of the day, not be putting all of their scarce resources towards that common goal of victory. And so for that reason, if you have a fragmented or united movement, or long and short, a competitive internal movement, you are less likely to be successful. And what examples might we put all of this into practice, real examples, describing what you've just described. So different national movements, either fragmented ones or very hierarchical and solid. Sure. So just from the book itself, and then I'll bring up some present-day examples as well. So my book has this argument that I present, and then I have four different chapters, one chapter each on these four national movements. Um, so in the Palestinian national movement, they've been marked by extensive fragmentation. So as I say, even though you know, you're kind of shifting around the deck chairs on the Titanic of who's on top and who's on the bottom, at the end of the day, it's mostly been fragmented, and that's one of the main reasons there's not a state of Palestine today. Now, the one exception is in the late 80s and early 90s, you had Fatah become the hegemonic dominant group, and that's one of the reasons I argue that's why the Palestinians came the closest to getting a state that they ever had before. If we look at the Zionists, um, they actually had a hegemonic national movement. Politically, they were dominated by the Labor Zionist Party, um, and militarily, they were dominated by the Haganah, the predecessor to the IDF. And so when it came time to either um, have a clear, cohesive face to the UN and international community, or when it came time to fight the Palestinian and Arab states on the battlefield, the Haganah and the Zionists did much better because they had a generally cohesive movement. Even though they had other groups like the Irgun or the Lehi or the revisionist Zionist political parties, they were still relatively smaller, and so therefore they were able to be brought to heal when the time came. In the Algerian national movement, it was a somewhat similar story, fragmented for quite a while, which is why the Algerians didn't get independence for many decades, despite struggling against the French. But then when the FLN comes along and physically eliminates a bunch of its rivals in the mid to late 1950s, it becomes a hegemonic movement. And lo and behold, in 62, Algeria becomes an independent state from France. In the Irish case, and again, I kind of break it into two parts, in the early 19-teens and late early 1920s, that's when Ireland gets its kind of independence, quote-unquote, as a free state from the UK. And they do that in part because the IRA and Sinn Féin kind of dominate the movement, whereas during the Troubles from 1968 to 1998, it's a pretty fragmented movement, not just among Republican parties, but also between parties like the SDLP and Sinn Féin. And that's one of, the, again, the main reasons that ultimately that national movement to try to get Northern Ireland as part of Ireland is unsuccessful. 
if we look at present examples quickly, people like the Iraqi Kurds, um, they have not just the KDP and PUK, but other political parties and militant groups historically, and absolutely that's helped to hinder their ability to become independent Kurdistan. Um, so we can look around there, we can look in places like Vietnam, where the Viet Minh were a hegemonic movement that in many ways um, helped them be successful against the French in the United States. The most recent new state to join, South Sudan, was fragmented for many decades until the SPLA came to, came to dominate the movement and therefore get independence from Sudan. So there's no laws in social science. There's absolutely exceptions to my argument. But overall, I find evidence for it again and again, both in terms of the four cases I look at in my book, as well as in present-day examples. And one thing that's really important to the success of a movement is this distribution of power, and you have touched on it just now. But I was wondering if you could describe that more, because you have really great examples in the book on this. Sure. So this is the whole basis for what I'm talking about, where you stand depends on where you sit, or I talk about hegemonic versus fragmented movements. All of that is distribution of power. So one of the main things that I did, one of the main contributions for my book is I had this argument, but there really isn't data for it. There's a lot of great data sets out there on the terrorist attacks that are in the world or on civil wars or things like that. But to get... Uh, data on every militant or political organization within a national movement. Its membership size, its funding, etc., by year just doesn't really exist. So many of the years that I spent researching this book was through the archives, through interviews, through reading good secondary source literature, compiling all the information so I could actually have a picture of the distribution of power among various organizations over time. And what that allowed me to do is it gave me really strong and precise tests of my argument. So for example, I argue that weaker factions are the ones who are more likely to escalate violence, whereas stronger ones are more likely to restrain it because violence is risky for them when they're on top, and they also feel like they're going to bear the brunt of it. Well, here's a couple historical examples of that exactly being what happened. So in the Palestinian case, you had Fatah, who was initially one of the weaker groups in the mid-1960s. And so they're the ones who are actually launching armed struggle against Israel in January 1st, 1965, whereas some of the stronger groups, like the PLO, who was then their rival, was trying to prevent from doing these attacks. Later on, as the attacks become more effective or at least getting more notoriety for Fatah, then you get the PLO and the ANM, who are actually other Palestinian factions, making up their own militant groups and claiming that Fatah's attacks were theirs all along. When it switches and all of a sudden Fatah becomes the stronger Palestinian faction by the late 1960s, you also get them restraining the PFLP, who's escalating by using hijackings because they've now become a weaker faction. So what's really fascinating is that even though the membership, the leader of the various organizations, their ideology don't change, what does change is their relative strength and therefore their tactics in terms of whether they use violence or not and restrain it or not, negotiate or spoil also often change, and that's one of the key findings of the book. And on this topic, how does competition between these different factions and potentially outbidding play into all of this with the use of violence or restraining from using violence? Yeah, so this concept of outbidding plays a key role in my story. And to be clear, that's not a term that I coined at all. There's many great scholars, uh, from Mia Bloom to a number of others who wrote about outbidding, including Martha Crenshaw, 
And it's basically this idea that, kind of like candidates running in a primary, uh, you say, oh, I'm going to lower taxes 5%. No, I'm going to lower them 10%. Or I'm going to give health care to 10 million more people. No, 20 more million. It's the idea that you're trying to appeal to an audience by doing more or signaling you're more committed to the cause. In the case of some of these groups and national movements, violence is kind of the coin of the realm because it's a costly signal to show that you're fighting for the cause and you're striking against the enemy. That certainly plays a role in what I'm talking about. The Palestinian groups, as again many scholars have written about, have done this. Um, the Algerian groups have done it, although a little bit less. One of the fascinating things I find in my book is that competition is pretty much a constant inside of these movements, especially fragmented ones. But what's different is how these groups compete. Sometimes they compete by outbidding and striking the enemy in more and more escalatory ways. Sometimes they actually fight against each other directly. So as I mentioned for the Algerians, the FLN doesn't so much try to strike the French more than the MNA does. They just physically start fighting and eliminating them. In the case of the Zionists, the main way that the labor Zionists became dominant, and again, people like Baruch Kimmerling or other scholars have written somewhat on this, um, it wasn't because they struck the British more or attacked the Arab-Palestinian population more. It's because they were able to outbid by using immigration and using territory inside of the Palestine mandate. So I see competition happening all the time. What's really interesting is that it takes various forms depending on the context. And what about your Irish case? Did you see outbidding and competition going on with that. I absolutely did, and that's also a really fascinating one because in the Irish case, you have um, political parties who are competing with other political parties, but they are political wings that actually also have armed wings. So, for example, the Social Democratic and Labour Party, which was the strongest Irish nationalist party during the Troubles, um, did not use violence, did not have an armed wing. Whereas Sinn Féin, which is a Republican political party also fighting for Northern Ireland to be part of Ireland, did have an armed wing, which was the IRA. And so what was really interesting about that is that the parties would be competing for votes, especially once the IRA starts running candidates, but they wouldn't necessarily have the same exact tactics. So whereas the IRA could point to the violence it was using to defend the community or whatever else, the SDLP could not, although they also got a lot of support because not all the Irish in Northern Ireland wanted violence in that way. They saw that as a potential negative thing, especially if it was against civilians. So what the SDLP would do is they would sometimes practice abstentionism, which is something Sinn Féin did all the time. Abstentionism is basically the idea that you run for a seat, you run an election, but even if you win it, you refuse to actually go and have the candidate or the nominee elected official go and sit in that parliament or that body as a way of delegitimizing it. For a long time, the SDLP would not do this. They would sit in various places they were elected. But once Sinn Féin got strong enough to potentially challenge them and then was also potentially practicing abstentionism, the SDLP started to do it too. So again, depending on the ideology of the group or your position, it might change a little bit the kind of repertoire of possible tactics you could use. But at the end of the day, I still found that groups change their tactics a great deal depending on whether they feel like they've got a close competitor or what I call a challenger or whether they don't. And so the use of violence and political effectiveness on that topic, how does a group know that it's time to maybe wean off the violence versus continuing violent actions? Yeah, so that's a great question. And, you know, again, the Irish example provides some interesting insight there because if you look during the course of the Troubles from 68 to 98, you see groups at various periods of time kind of falling away from violence. And there's this really famous quote where it basically said, you know, the first group, the official IRA who turned away from violence, they were right too soon. 
and then the you know kind of provisional IRA, which is you know Sinn Fein, which is Jerry Adams's group, they were just you know they basically were right, but they were right too late. And then they say the real IRA are these people who were even against the Good Friday Accords in '98 that they'll never be right. But it's basically this kind of you know semi-joking statement of saying that you know you want to turn away from violence when the time is right, quote unquote, from a political perspective. But how do you know when it's right? I think the answer has to do with number one the war weariness or lack thereof for the population because at the end of the day a lot of these groups are drawing support whether in terms of votes or recruits or money from their base population so their opinions make a big difference but also of course it's what type of concessions they're getting and how the state itself is acting so is the state repressing these groups are they negotiating with them are they giving them concessions or not um, that plays a big role in whether groups kind of from a strategic perspective should or should not be using violence and so you certainly see groups who do differently with this in terms of whether they turn away from it or keep using it. But again, I find regardless of ideology, whether you're a religious group, a secular group, a communist group, or whatever, when groups get put in the kind of the catbird seat on top, when they're in line to inherit the throne, not just getting an independent state, it really does change their tactics. They start becoming much more willing to negotiate, much more uh, reticent to use violence, uh, again, just from a self-interested perspective, whereas conversely, groups who are previously in the catbird seat and get knocked down, all of a sudden they start to say, hmm, you know, maybe violence looks like a more attractive strategy for us to have us try to recapture our previous glory. And you just alluded to religion, so I would like to talk about how religion plays into national movements, um, especially with the case of Palestine and Algeria and to some extent uh, the Irish case as well. But how does religion fall into all of this when it comes to national movements? Yeah, so in a basic sense, I guess I would say my book is a lot about power and how your relative position of power and the distribution of power drives the behavior of organizations. In that sense, it's somewhat in opposition to others who will point and say, no, the main reason groups act the way they do is because of their ideology or whether they're religious or not. And again, I find that there's evidence for that. So, for example, historically, we've got cases of religious and non-religious factions who are operating similarly based on their position. A more recent one is to look at a group like Hamas. Now, Hamas is a religious group. They're based out of the Muslim Brotherhood initially. And obviously, as we read the media otherwise, they've been pretty extreme in terms of their use of violence and some of their ideology, even though they're certainly also a Palestinian national group, just like Fatah or some of these other organizations are. What's fascinating is after Hamas rises to power, uh, quote-unquote, in 2006, they win the last free and fair Palestinian elections. 2007, they basically take over Gaza in a de facto manner. Um, they actually start to change some of their approach because they're now kind of in the catbird seat, not in the whole movement, but in Gaza. And they're also the address that the Israelis and others are looking to in terms of punishment for rocket fire from Gaza into Israel. And so you see a number of interesting things that happen. Number one, Hamas sometimes starts to arrest the members of other Palestinian factions inside of Gaza who have launched rockets against the Israelis when Hamas doesn't want it to happen, as well as the fact that earlier this year, and again it's much debated, but there started to be some speeches and some intimations that maybe Hamas would accept a Palestinian state inside the 67 borders. Now, there's still open debate about that. A lot of people say, no, a religious group can't make concessions like that. You know, the Hamas considers Palestine a waqf, and so they can't be negotiated over. But to the extent they're following that trajectory, it actually fits with what happened with Fatah. People forget that Fatah, when it was early on founded, was not in favor of a two-state solution. In fact, they would do very terrible things to people who were among the Palestinians. But over time, in part because of their position of power changed, Yasser Arafat became more open to having less of the state than he otherwise would as long as he controlled it. 
In fact, in the 1970s, uh, as Bill Kwan has written about and has there's some documents in the Foreign Relations of the United States, uh, basically Arafat said, look, I'll accept UN Resolution 242 or some of these major UN resolutions um, as long as you can guarantee me a Palestinian state with me at the head. And if you do that, I'll take the deal. If you can't do that, then I can't hold back the Syrians or others from kind of the pressure that they're giving me. So the long and short of it is simply the fact that I do think religion and ideology plays a role in group tactics, but I also think that when push comes to shove, your relative position of power and what you get out of it might play a more important uh, role in your decision making. And on that note, religion does have a lot of power to it. So in a sense, religion plays into the power as well. It's just observation. But I want to kind of take the talk more to some of your personal experiences with the interviews that you did, because you did over 150 interviews for this book uh, with participants of national movements. And I was wondering the types of insight you got on rebel power from these personal accounts. Um, and if you had a favorite interview and why? Sure. So that was a key part of this whole process. I mean, I think that, number one, because I'm just trying to get information and data on these organizations, um, unlike, say, ISIS over the past couple of years, most of these groups are not producing annual reports where they're talking about their number of members or these types of things. And so, number one, just talking to people to get information if they're a regional commander of this organization, you know, how many people they roughly had. Um, you know, again, these aren't perfectly precise estimates, but it's, it's better sometimes than what you can find or just can't even find in the existing literature. So that was very helpful. And then, again, I kind of focused a lot of my interviews on elites within these organizations. And when I say elites, I mean people who are in kind of leadership positions with the idea that they would be involved in the decision-making process and they would be in the room when these decisions were being made. Another thing that made it easier is that, unlike some other people, I wasn't trying to interview these people so much about what they personally did. And that's also good from a legal perspective. Otherwise, I wasn't trying to ask people like, oh, tell me about this bomb you put here or things like that. Um, I was asking them about the organizations of which they're a part. And I think that also made it more easy for people to talk to me because, as anyone knows, any organization you're a part of, we're always happy or often happy at least to see some of the flaws in the organization and how they would run it this way or this was done incorrectly. And so I think in many ways I got uh, more honest insights because that was my unit of analysis instead of the people that I was actually talking to. In terms of interesting interviews, you know, there were a number of them. In Algeria, um, I interviewed Zohra Drif, if you've ever seen the Battle of Algiers, and I, I start my book actually talking about her a little bit. Um, she was one of the women involved in a you know, multi-day of bombing. She put a bomb in the milk bar in Algiers, uh, which is you know, a place for French civilians. And so in that sense, you know, the act of, is, of course, a condemnatory thing. Um, but it's interesting. She was arrested by the French and then later released after Independence in 62. She became the vice president of the Algerian Senate and, you know, is still around today. In fact, her memoirs were just recently published. But, uh, you know, interviewing her was fascinating regarding just... Um, you know, her desire to join the FLN and why she did, um, what she thought about the violence that she and others had used, not just in terms of justification from her perspective, but also um, how it helped or hurt the kind of broader cause. So I found those interviews really fascinating. And, you know, also on a personal level, it can be an interesting but also difficult thing. Um, there's a growing, obviously, field of terrorism studies. And one of the things I'm struck by is, you know, many of the people who write and are some of the best experts on terrorism haven't necessarily done a lot of interviews of people who commit terrorist acts. And I understand that because it's a challenge to do so. It could be a security risk. You know, there's other things that go into it. But um, it really is a striking thing, and I don't think you can oversell the personal aspect of it, in part because, you know, when you read about terrorism or whatnot, it's usually, from the media or otherwise, oh, people are crazy, irrational, 
etc. And I think when you talk to people, you realize that you can separate kind of the immoral morality of it and the evil of this type of attack versus the fact that, you know, most of these people are clearly quite rational and sometimes very educated. So in Zohra's case, I believe she was the only Algerian woman who was in the law school at the time when she joined the FLN. So um, it's somewhat of a disconnect and maybe makes it harder from a personal perspective to kind of study this stuff because it's not all just black and white in terms of where these people are coming from, but certainly in terms of the act itself, it's no problem to say that that's something that I personally wouldn't support even though it's not what my book, my book is not about. But it, it does give you a lot of insight into the thinking of the time, I think, you know, as an American, you read a lot about the American Revolution, think about, oh, yeah, I would have been supportive of the patriots there, whatever else, but to hear the stories of people who were in a national movement, when you're in a national movement that doesn't have a state, that means that you feel like people are living in your country or occupying it or oppressing you, whatever else, so to hear that perspective, but also to hear the perspective of the choices organizations had regarding, well, we could use violence, and that gives us some support maybe, but it's much more risky, and people have families and whatnot. Um, I think it really puts you right in the kind of the front seat of what's going on there in ways that just reading about this stuff do not. And so um, the interviews were incredibly helpful, and I really have you know great respect and thanks to my interviewees for helping me, even though, again, um, many of them did things that I don't personally support, but that's what being a you know, trying to be an objective scholar is all about is I'm trying to learn about this stuff and write about it. And I feel like I have faithfully told the stories of these people as well. I haven't just been, you know, demonizing. I've been trying to explain what their organizations did from a kind of analytical perspective. And so that's one of the, I think, the big strengths of the book. But uh, yeah, that's kind of my take on it. No, and I completely agree. Having read the book, your take, well, not your take, but showing the stories and the personal experiences of these individuals in a manner that portrays it without taking a side but showing all sides is is very important because as you said they are people there is a cause that was important to them and from that we can learn despite the acts that they might have committed so you've got this fantastic title for the book so i'm just going to throw out a huge question like in a nutshell how do national movements compete compete fight and win because the title is very strong in, in saying that. So give us that in a nutshell. Sure. So national movements compete when they have a competitive internal environment, which basically means do they have multiple actors who are trying to lead the movement? Then they're going to compete with one another. If there's a hegemonic movement, they're not going to compete as much. How they fight? Well, they use violence or nonviolence in part based on, again, that power structure. So the weaker groups are more likely to use violence. The stronger groups are more likely to try to restrain and not use violence. And then as a movement collectively, if it's fragmented, there'll be much more fighting and a lot of internal fighting. Whereas if it's hegemonic, there'll be fighting, but it'll be more fighting between the movement and the state that it's trying to overthrow. In terms of how they win, they win if they have a hegemonic uh, internal movement, which basically means you have a single dominant faction. Um, it doesn't mean that there's only one group. There could be 30 groups, but there's one that's at least three times as strong as any other potential challenger. And what that means is you've got a cohesive strategy. You have a clear message to the outside world and to your enemy. You have the ability to sign a deal and guarantee its terms when the time comes because there aren't significant spoilers. And you're spending most of your scarce resources actually struggling and fighting for victory instead of fighting for position. And so that's the argument for why national movements win. And if you want to tie it all together, I would say they win when they don't compete so much and when they're fighting not against each other but against the state. And so you've mentioned certain movements that are going on right now, and I'm assuming you're probably going to be watching those very carefully. But 
looking at national movements, we've had them throughout history. What do you think the future might look for, look like, excuse me, for national movements in our current time and environment? Yeah, I think that, again, I think I threw some examples that would disprove this right from the get-go, but I think for some people, because they're located in the U.S. or maybe even in parts of Europe, although that's changing too, would think like, oh, you know, nationalism, that was kind of a thing that happened in the 20th century, that was post-colonial era, you know, when the British and the French were rolling up their empires, that's kind of an old story. And again, I think events just looking on the front page today would show that that's not the case. Whether it's the Iraqi Kurds or the Scots or people in Catalonia or, you know, again, newly established states like South Sudan or a number of other different ethnic groups that are looking for independence, um, these are issues today. And in fact, if we look at the conflicts that the U.S. is involved in around the world, um, I'd say the majority of them are civil wars and many of them have nationalist elements to them. So there are certainly ones that involve groups like ISIS that aren't exactly nationalists, although they have been trying or did try to capture control of territory and make it a state. But whether we're talking about the conflict in Syria or the conflict in Afghanistan or Yemen, I mean, all of this stuff, at least in the broader sense, are insurgencies and civil wars where you have these non-state rebel groups who are fighting for control of either the broader state or part of it. And so even though my book is specifically about nationalist insurgencies and national movements, I do believe that the vast majority of my findings can apply to non-national insurgencies as well. As long as these various rebel factions are fighting for control, are competing with one another, are thinking about who not just is going to win, the broader fight, but who's going to win control of the new state, I think that the argument that I make still obtains. And so for that sense, I would say my book's really important for explaining the future of, of conflict, not just in the Middle East, but beyond, and unfortunately perhaps as well, the major conflicts that the United States finds itself in is going to find itself in going forward, because somewhat thankfully, interstate war is not a thing of the past, but it's much less common than it used to be, whereas intrastate war, whether civil war, insurgency, terrorism, or otherwise, is unfortunately very present and potentially on the rise. And so I think we need books, not just like my own, but many others who have written on these to have us help understand and hopefully have better policy regarding them. And on that point, I know that you'll be doing a trip to the capital region very soon. So what is it that you'd like policy makers to gain from your book? Say they can't read the full thing potentially because we know that they are very busy all the time, but what are some <laughs> What are some of the key points that you'd love for them to pull out that might be helpful in current situations and the future? Yes. So, yeah, first I'll say as a quick plug, um, I'll be doing a talk on November 17th on Friday at Department of Homeland Security and then on Monday, November 20th at the University of Maryland. And so at least the second one is a public talk. The first one, if you're in government, I believe you can sign up for. But in terms of the key takeaways, I'd say there's a couple. The first is when the United States gets involved in one of these conflicts, it seems like there's three different goals that are often being pursued. One is trying to you know, have counterterrorism and tamp down on violence. The other is supporting the victory or defeat of the rebels, depending on the conflict. And the third is trying to have kind of a stable, at least democracy or stable country to some extent. One of the reasons I think the U.S. has been unsuccessful in many of its forays in the Middle East and elsewhere for these types of conflicts is because my research shows you actually want very different movement structures depending on which of those objectives you're prioritizing. So, for example, if you're trying to pursue a counterterrorism strategy, you actually want to fight against a hegemonic insurgency or national movement because then you don't have those internal competitive juices that lead groups to escalate or use more violence against you and your civilians. On the contrary, however... 
if you are trying to defeat an insurgency, you actually do want to fight a fragmented insurgency or movement and not a hegemonic one, because that's the kind of classic divide and conquer and also have those groups fight each other um, instead of fighting you as much. That's a real challenge, though, right? So if you're trying to defeat an insurgency but also tamp down on violence, it calls for totally different policies depart determining how you should actually structure the movement you're fighting against to the extent that you can do so. On the other side of things, let's say that the United States or another state is trying to support an insurgency or national movement. Okay, if you want it to be successful, you want it to be hegemonic because that makes it more likely, again, cohesive strategy, yada, 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 you get a new state. But if you want that new state to actually be a democracy, you don't want it to be hegemonic because if it's hegemonic, you're going to get a one-party state. The FLN fights and gets independence from the, Fran the French for Algeria in 1962. Guess who still leads Algeria to this day, 70 years plus later, the FLN. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that when victory comes, they're pretty much the only game in town, and they spend a lot of their time thereafter cramping down on enemies. Whereas if you have victory at a time when you have multiple significant factions, that gives you pluralism and probably stronger institutions and a potential basis for a democracy. The catch-22 is, well, yeah, you want pluralism, you want that, but if you have a fragmented movement, it's less likely to succeed. So it doesn't mean that... Ultimately, you can't have all of these different things, but the idea that you just pursue them all without thinking about the structure of the movements you're fighting or supporting um, means that you're going to have a lot of problems. And you saw that in Libya in terms of trying to unify some of the rebels there under Mahmoud Jibril. You saw that in Syria where the U.S. was constantly trying to make alliances among these groups. But at the end of the, ga end of the day, the real th game you have to play is the power balance and understanding that and the impact that has on violence, on outcome, and on potential democratization. As a final conclusion to the talk, and you're new to the Loopcast, so um, I'll just explain. We tend to, if we have time permitting, like to give our guests a moment to maybe touch on something that we might not have touched on, on in the talk, or if you have a final thought. So I want to pass the mic over to you, so to speak, and give you that opportunity. Sure. Um, I thought those were great questions on the book itself, so you know, there's obviously much more to add, but I think we hit all the key points. I'll just quickly raise some interesting stuff about you know, kind of future projects. So first is, I actually have another book, an edited volume coming out next month called Coercion, The Power to Hurt in International Politics, and I wrote a chapter for it and edited a bunch of others and co-authored some, but the one that's the most important is, after I wrote Rebel Power, you know, one of the questions was, hey, you know, this is very interesting, many people agree with my analysis of the cases, but at the end of the day, it's just four national movements out of hundreds, so to what extent does my argument travel? And then a lot of the pushback I got was, hey, is this just an anti-colonial story? What about post-colonial or anti-colonial cases? So I said, okay, let me analyze some others. So I analyzed Eritrea and Eritrea's national movement and push for independence from Ethiopia because it was the first uh, successful national movement in Africa in the post-colonial period. So it wouldn't fit that broader challenge or critique of my previous book. And lo and behold, I found same dynamics. Uh, you see groups like the EPLF and the ELF who are fighting one another and being unsuccessful at getting independent Eritrea. Eventually, the EPLF basically kind of eliminates or significantly weakens the ELF. And then once it becomes hegemonic, you get an independent Eritrea. So that book's coming out next month, and that'll be an interesting takeoff on this book in terms of if you're interested in African politics. And then my next big project that's not close to coming out, but I'm working on now, my kind of next big book, is going to branch off of Rebel Power to look at not just when national movements compete, fight, and win and succeed, but which groups actually come to power after victory. And I think this is a key issue because it's not just important to be able to anticipate which insurgent groups are going to rule the new state, but that's actually a big reason why states get involved or not in intervening in the first place. 
Look at Syria. Why is the United States not but that involved in Syria? One of the arguments would simply be, well, not necessarily love for the Assad regime, but if the alternative is ISIS or another organization, doesn't actually look that great. Whereas from, say, the Saudis' perspective, they look at Assad as being an Iranian proxy, and so they say, yes, the alternative of these groups we're supporting might be better. That's why we're going to get involved. So long and short, the U.S., intel or otherwise, doesn't have the best record of necessarily predicting in the Iranian revolution the play, the, how big of a player Khomeini would become after the fall of the Shah, you know, a number of other cases in Libya and elsewhere. So my book is actually looking at all these various uncertainties across history, looking at all the various organizations and coding, you know, their ideology, their membership size, whether they use violence or not, all these types of things. So I'll be able to analyze and I think be able to predict to a large extent um, which organizations and what type of characteristics make it more likely they'll be able to take power after victory, after a regime is overthrown. So that's to come in the future. But again, thank you so much for having me on today. Well, those future projects and then the up-and-coming book with chapters sound very exciting, so definitely keep a lookout for those. And for our listeners, if you're interested in this topic or just want to know more about some of the national movements in Palestine, Algeria, Zionist, Irish movements, and so forth, um, please read Rebel Power, Why National Movements Compete, Fight, and Win. And I just want to thank you, Peter, for coming on the Loopcast and talking about this fantastic book and the research you did for it. Thank you so much, Chelsea. It was a pleasure. Likewise.